Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A desperate search and rescue mission underway at this hour near the site of the sunken Titanic. The lead starts right now. An underwater expedition to see the wreckage of the Titanic is now a race to find and save the tourists and crew members on board the exploratory vessel. The mission is ramping up to prevent a second tragedy at that site. Plus, superpowers meeting. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reports back, quote, progress after a high state's talk with China. The areas of success and the one major point of lingering contention coming up and the judge's order that restricts what Donald Trump can and cannot reveal about his federal indictment, but will the former president obey the judge? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead, a submersible that takes paying customers to visit the wreckage of the Titanic in the depths of the North Atlantic Ocean. That submersible is missing at this hour. The U.S. Coast Guard says five people are on board. And now a frantic search and rescue operations underway. Coast Guard units from along the East Coast, along with Canadian officials, are trying desperately to reestablish contact with crew members. We're expecting an update from officials within this hour. The submersible belongs to Ocean Gate Expeditions. Now, that's a deep sea exploration company whose whose website says it charges passengers $250,000 apiece for the voyage to see the Titanic on the ocean floor. CNN's Paula Newton is following this all from the Canadian capital of Ottawa. Paula, uh, what are you learning about this urgent search at this hour? What's been interesting here is when you say the depths of the sea, that's what we're talking about here. These are depths that normally are not explored uh, on any great regularity. Uh, This is, as you said, about the Titanic wreck, which is about 400 miles, nearly 400 miles uh, southeast of St. John's, Newfoundland in Canada. They set off apparently on Sunday. What's crucial here, uh, Jake, is to remember that they lost contact with them about an hour and 45 minutes into their submersion submersion into the sea. They're supposed to submerge for about two, two and a half hours, explore for six to eight, and then it's supposed to take about another two hours for them to surface. It seems that within the first two hours, they lost communication with uh, these five people. Um, What's interesting here are the assets that are also being deployed. It is uh, led by the U.S. Coast Guard, as you say, but Canadian assets also there. A a P-8 Poseidon uh, aircraft is in the air at the hour, and what they are designed to do is to look for these submersibles under the sea. But you have to remember... This is the kind of deep sea exploration that isn't done on a casual basis. You you mentioned tourists, but really, uh, this is not a a whale watching trip off the coast of the Atlantic. Uh, These are very specific, highly specialized expeditions. They take a lot of time to organize, a lot of expertise, and the weather is crucially important. We don't know that there was any adverse weather at the time. They wouldn't have set out if there was. 
I mentioned again expertise, as well as those assets uh, on the ocean and in the air. They are really trying to coalesce around expertise from all over the world because this is going to be a difficult mission. These deep sea rescues are not easy. They are incredibly complicated, even if and when they locate them. Uh, And that's the issue at this point, Jake, as the U.S. Coast Guard tries to coordinate the rescue. So I do a little scuba diving and even going 100 uh, 100 feet underwater is really risky. Um, What can you tell us about the underwater vessel they were going, uh, they were on going to these depths? Yeah, so this is about 21 feet long. So so think about that. That's not very long at, at all, right? It's not big. We're not talking uh, about a, a military submarine here. And yet this company, uh, Ocean Gate Expeditions, for years tried to really hone their expertise for this specific mission going almost two and a half miles under the sea. They have about 96 day, 96 hours, I should say, about four days of provisions. That would mean crucially oxygen, but also fuel. Uh, in order to survive. So they have had communication flaws with this submersible before. And so they are waiting to see if that's the issue. But again, a specialized submersible. And right now it would make it just the size of it. It would mean it would be very difficult to try and find it at that depth. Jake. Mm. Paula Newton in Ottawa. Thank you so much. Just how extensive is the Coast Guard's role in this search? The U.S. Coast Guard. Let's bring in CNN's Orrin Lieberman who's live for us at the Pentagon. Or tell us more about the type of equipment being used in this search and rescue mission. Jake, we're seeing a joint search effort here from both the U.S. and the Canadians, different assets, uh, equipment, aircraft with different purposes to take part and try to figure out where this submersible is and, of course, in what condition. The U.S. Coast Guard has deployed a C-130, a four-engine aircraft capable of long-range and and long-endurance patrol missions. This would be an aircraft that's very effective at searching large swaths of the surface of the water, and that would likely be its role to see if there's any sort of debris or the submersible itself if it surfaced in some way. So that's what a C-130J would be uh, would be from the uh, U.S. Coast Guard. The Canadians, meanwhile, and Paula mentioned this, have deployed a P-8 Poseidon. This has a very different role, although it certainly can search on top of the water. Its primary purpose is to search underwater. It is, in fact, used for anti-submarine warfare, for the most part, a military aircraft designed to find and hunt down enemy submarines. This, of course, slightly different. It has ways of detecting the mass of a submarine or a submersible underwater. Here, it's not looking for an enemy submarine. It's looking for this submersible, smaller than a military submarine, which might make it more difficult to find. But, of course, a crucial difference here, this ship, this underwater vessel, wants to be found. And that perhaps makes this search just a bit easier, even with all the challenges that are piling up here. The Canadian Coast Guard has also sent a ship out, the right. Copit Hobson 1752. That is on its way to the site, Jake. All right, Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. I want to bring in Craig Sopin, who studies Titanic wreckage and is a trustee with the Titanic International Society. Thanks so much for joining us. So Ocean Gate Expeditions, the company operating uh, the, this vessel, says that the journey goes more than 13,000 feet deep. Uh, how, how dangerous is it to see the Titanic wreckage and go down uh, that, that, that deep? Actually, it's not considered very dangerous at all. These tours have been occurring for about two decades uh, through various companies. It's always been considered safe. You know, it would probably be very unnerving for any of us to walk onto, say, a commercial airline when there's only one pilot on board. 
These tours generally have only one pilot, but the difference between this and an airline is that these submersibles can fall from the sky. And also instead of an air traffic controller dealing with many airplanes at the same time, all the resources of these companies, including OceanGate, is dedicated towards this one vessel. The vessels are safe, the pilots are experienced, and all of the people I've spoken to have actually been on these dives don't express any fear at all other than the fear of claustrophobia because we know from many of these dives, including the official dives and the tourist dives, that they've been considered very safe. And hopefully that in this particular case, we're only dealing with a communication problem rather than a submersible problem. Let's hope so. Uh, you also happen to know a pilot who can operate a submersible and has done previous excursions for OceanGate. Have you talked to him? I've not spoken to him and I've not spoken to anyone who's been able to get in contact with him. We do believe that he is at least on site. We don't know whether or not he is in the submersible. I'm hoping for the best. I've tried to contact him to no avail so far, as have others, but I'm hoping to hear from him tonight. You have spent years yourself researching the Titanic and and you've been offered to join an expedition such as this one. What do you know uh, about this vessel? Well, this vessel is different from any of the others. First of all, most of the other vessels were were designed to take only three passengers. That could be two pilots and and one passenger or three three people, including one pilot. This, though, uh, goes to the next level because the Titan submersible is able to take five passengers, possibly on a good day, six. And if there are, if there's one pilot and one individual pointing things out, the content master, that means there are three people who can go on the vessel. The vessel is built very strongly. And it's, I believe, the first vessel to take passengers down to the wreck site that has so many safety safeguards on board. It can alert if there's too much pressure, alert if there is uh, water, coming into the vessel, which is almost impossible in these cases. It has a beautiful porthole, unlike any of the other, where the uh, Titanic could be observed from. So in terms of safety, I would consider it to be the most safe of the vessels. And in terms of luxury, while we can't really consider claustrophobia uh, a big luxury, it does have some great portholes, which provide for some beautiful views of the ship. So OceanGate says it charges $250,000 a person um, for this trip. Before this excursion, um, would you say there was a large group of enthusiasts lining up to, to take such a trip? Well, I can tell you decades ago, the group was a little larger because the, the price of the trip is only about $30,000. And it seemed to have made an incredible jump to $250,000. So obviously, the audience for this is very limited. And there, from what I understand, there is a line. In fact, the next tours were already planned. I believe two of them were planned for 2024, filled to capacity. So the answer is, if you can afford it, yeah, it's there for you. All right, Craig Zopin, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. In China today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken walked away from talks with a significant commitment, he says, from the Chinese Communist government. But all is not well. My next guest says he may know what might cause the next major international conflict. Plus, the warnings about Donald Trump from two men who who were in his cabinet are their messages falling on deaf ears. Plus, weekend violence, why it is so hard for police to even estimate how many shooters were involved 
in a mass shooting outside Chicago this weekend. Also in the world lead today, positive signs amid a freefall in diplomatic relations between the world's two biggest economies. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Chinese President Xi Jinping met earlier today to cap off Blinken's belated trip to Beijing. Both men characterized the 35-minute long meeting as, quote, progress, though Taiwan, the self-ruling democratic island, which China's ruling Communist Party claims but has never controlled, remains a key sticking point. CNN's Kylie Atwood is in Beijing for us as Blinken concede there's still, quote, a lot more work to do. Secretary of State Antony Blinken casting U.S.-China relations as a work in progress at the end of his two-day visit to Beijing, coming when tensions between the competing nations have never been greater. It was clear coming in that um, the relationship was at a, a point of instability, and both sides recognized the need uh, to work to stabilize it. After about 10 hours with the country's top foreign policy officials, Blinken capped his visit by sitting down with Chinese President Xi Jinping. The Chinese leader saying the two sides had made progress. But on one major objective that Biden administration officials set out to accomplish, standing up military-to-military channels of communication between the superpowers, Blinken left empty-handed. China has not agreed to move forward with that. I think that's an issue that we have to keep working on. The vital need for these channels evident in just the last few weeks, when aggressive Chinese maneuvers resulted in two military incidents between the U.S. and China in international waters and airspace of the South China Sea. But Blinken did walk away with a significant Chinese commitment, standing up a working group on fentanyl, with the majority of precursor chemicals from the deadly synthetic opioids flowing into the U.S. coming from China. My hope and expectation is uh, we will have better communications, better engagement going forward. The meetings marked with polite smiles. The tone, a stark contrast to the first time Blinken sat down with his Chinese counterpart in Alaska in 2021, when both sides traded barbs in front of cameras. In Beijing, Chinese officials again told Blinken that the Chinese government would not provide lethal support to Russia for the war in Ukraine. This is um, something that Uh, China has said uh, in recent weeks uh, and has repeatedly said, not only to us, but to many other countries that have raised this concern. Chinese Foreign Minister Xing Gong accepted Blinken's invitation to visit the U.S., and President Biden indicated that he's gearing up to meet with Xi in the coming months. I'm hoping that over the next uh, several months uh, I'll be meeting with Xi again and uh, talking about legitimate differences we have, but also how those areas we can get along. Now, Jake, it does appear that Blinken's visit here to Beijing is serving as somewhat of a springboard for further face-to-face engagement between U.S. and Chinese officials, with the secretary saying that in the coming weeks, senior Biden administration officials are also expected to visit Beijing. We know that the administration had been looking at visits for the Secretary of Commerce, the Secretary of Treasury, the Climate Envoys. We'll watch to see if those get scheduled. But I think it's important to note that China does have a vested interest in engaging with the United States when it comes to economic and trade issues. The two economies are intertwined and China's post-COVID economic recovery has faced a slowdown in recent months with youth unemployment in the country reaching an all-time high just in the last month. Jake? Hmm. 
All right. Kylie Atwood in Beijing for us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in retired Admiral Mike Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and co-chair of the Council on Foreign Relations Independent Task Force on Taiwan. Admiral, good to see you again. One of the key issues that did not get resolved today was restoring military to military communications between the U.S. and China. How concerned are you about that, given these recent incidents of Chinese warships making aggressive maneuvers in the Taiwan Strait, to say nothing of Chinese planes? I'm I'm concerned about them for certainly uh, the recent uh, interactions that we have, which are very dangerous, both in the uh, in the air and on sea. But a longer term concern is we haven't had them for quite some time, and I think that uh, having that. Communication channel open is absolutely vital to make sure nothing spins out of control. Uh, as you reported, the relationship is at an all-time low. Uh, so if something happens, the odds are it goes south very badly. So figuring out a way to uh, create that communications channel and sustain it over time is really critical. The Taiwan task force that you co-chair has a report coming out tomorrow um, detailing the increasingly imaginable conflict between the U.S. and China over Taiwan. You gave us an early first look at the report summary, which reads in part, quote, if deterrence fails and a war erupts, the result would be calamitous for Taiwan, China, the United States and the world, resulting in thousands of casualties on all sides and a profound global economic depression, unquote. But you also say that war is not inevitable. Tell us more about that. Well, it isn't inevitable, Uh, although the issue of deterrence, which has stood us very well for 50 years, is clearly uh, on the decline. And that's the concern. China has been much more aggressive, much more coercive uh, on the military side, just like the incidents we talked about from last week on the economic side, putting pressure on Taiwan and on the diplomatic and political side. Uh, That's changed quite a bit from Uh, Yesteryear, if you will, starting in about 2016, President Xi certainly has directed this, uh, and that has made it much more difficult. Uh, It's out of balance right now, from my perspective, and we need to take steps to reassure the Taiwanese to continue to support the one China policy, which is the peaceful reunification, uh, and do it in a way that, that is sustained over time peacefully. We just cannot get into a global conflict for the reasons we say in the report, as well as uh, what you just said, literally a global depression. During Blinken's visit, senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi reiterated that Taiwan is one of China's, quote, core interests over which it, quote, has no room for compromise or back down, unquote. Um, how does the U.S. change such a strong position or, or is your is your view that we can't and so we just need to move on from it? Well, I don't know that the Chinese position is going to change in terms of its core interest. Uh, uh, I do believe there is a possibility that we can uh, reinforce the the one China policy, if you will, and to to over the long term see this resolved peacefully. One of the things that uh, we've talked about in the report is the changes, you know, in the last decades. I mean, Taiwan, the Taiwanese people are much more independent minded. They're much more democratically focused. They're very prosperous, principally because of the semiconductor industry, which is the center of the world, quite frankly, on the creation of on on the manufacturing of semiconductors. Um, And they have received wide, wide felt support 
for countries like the U.S. and others who support uh, you know, democracy in the future. So it's made it more difficult. And China is, I think, responding to that. That's why the engagement that the secretary had today and will continue is really critical so that we can figure out a path ahead to resolve this peacefully. Admiral Mike Mullen, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it, sir. Thanks, Jay. Next, the judge's order that restricts what Donald Trump can and cannot say about his federal indictment case. But first, this programming note, CNN is is marking Juneteenth this evening with the Global Celebration for Freedom concert. The lineup includes Miguel, SWV, Kirk Franklin, and more. Live coverage begins at 7 o'clock Eastern, only here on CNN. And we're back with our law and justice lead. A judge in Donald Trump's classified documents case has ordered the former president be prohibited from discussing or posting on social media any information revealed during the discovery phase of this case. The ruling also applies to Trump aide Walt Nada, who is also facing charges for allegedly mishandling classified documents. CNN justice correspondent Jessica Schneider joins us now. Jessica, what exactly does this order stop Mr. Trump from doing? Yeah, Jake, this is a four-page protective order, and it details several prohibitions on the former president and his co-defendant, as you mentioned. That's because the Justice Department, those officials, want to ensure that all of the information that they hand over is kept private. So Donald Trump, Walt Nada, and their lawyers, they'll be barred from several things. First of all, sharing any information they're given with anyone other than their lawyers or people involved in the defense. Second, Trump and Nada will only be allowed to access this material under the direct supervision of their attorneys. Then they can take notes, but their notes have to be kept in the possession of their attorneys and stored securely. And finally, nothing can be shared on social media or with any news media in general. And what's interesting is that this sort of protective order, it is standard in criminal cases like this. The order actually has to be signed by all the parties who are privy to any of the information collected and handed over by prosecutors. And Jake, it's really to protect against the disclosure of sensitive information like grand jury transcripts, especially when other investigations are still ongoing. It's something that's actually referred to in this order. And we know, obviously, the special counsel's probe is still ongoing, especially into efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election. So the DOJ overall, they need this protective order to make sure that information about those other investigations, if it's handed over as part of the classified documents probe, that ultimately it's not disclosed publicly. Are Trump's attorneys fighting this order? They're not. Uh, They've completely consented to this. In fact, when we saw the motion from the Justice Department on Friday, it specifically said on the first page that attorneys for Donald Trump, uh, Walt Nada himself, they had agreed that this protective order was something that should go into effect. Now the next step is for all the parties to sign this as soon as they're given that information from DOJ as this process uh, and this criminal prosecution continues, Jake. Hmm. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig joins us now. Ellie, what what happens if Trump violates this policy? And and again, we've talked about this before. Doesn't this infringe on the freedom of speech of a former president and current presidential candidate? Well, Jake, there's no constitutional issue here. This is something that Donald Trump's own team has consented to. You don't want your materials getting out there to potential jurors and potential witnesses ahead of the trial. And you have to 
protect the ongoing investigation. So yes, Trump's an unusual case because he's a presidential candidate, but his attorneys have raised no objection here. If there's a violation, the judge can impose sort of escalating levels of discipline, starting with a warning, then to financial penalties. And if you have an excessive repeated instance of violation, then a judge can issue, uh, can find contempt, which could result in imprisonment. That's a very, very rare case. All right, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Right now, the Coast Guard is giving an update on that urgent search operation near the site of the Titanic wreckage. Let's take a listen. Members and the families uh, on board, uh, of those on board the submersible at this time, and we are doing everything that we can do uh, to make sure that uh, we can uh, locate uh, and rescue uh, those on board. So after receiving the call, uh, we uh, launched, uh, well, reached out to uh, the vessel Polar Prince and began a surface search uh, looking for uh, the submersible. At the same time, uh, we launched a C-130 uh, aircraft to search, to conduct an aerial search, uh, both visual and radar of uh, the scene. We've subsequently uh, coordinated with uh, the Canadian uh, Coast Guard and Canadian Armed Forces to deploy additional assets uh, to the scene. The Canadians have had a C-130 aircraft searching as well, in addition to also having a P-8 uh, submarine uh, search uh, aircraft uh, deploy as well and put uh, sonar buoys in the water uh, in attempt to uh, listen. This, uh, the location of the search is approximately 900 miles uh, east of Cape Cod uh, in a water depth of uh, roughly 13,000 feet. It is a, a remote area uh, and it is a, a challenge to conduct a uh, search in that remote area but we are deploying all available assets to uh, make sure that uh, uh, we can uh, locate uh, the craft and uh, uh, rescue uh, the, the people on board. Going into uh, this evening, we will continue to uh, fly aircraft and move additional uh, vessels into uh, the area. Uh, in this remote part of our uh, search and rescue responsibility, Oftentimes, we rely on commercial operators to be the first vessels uh, on scene. And so we've been in touch with additional commercial vessels that are operating in the area, as well as uh, initiating uh, the movement of additional Canadian Coast Guard assets uh, and U.S. Coast Guard uh, surface asset uh, into the area over the course of the next couple of days. Uh, adding to the complexity of this case is uh, the fact that uh, this was a uh, submersible vessel. And so we need to make sure that we're looking both on the surface uh, for uh, the vessel if it had uh, uh, surfaced uh, back uh, to uh, the water, uh, but it somehow uh, lost uh, communications with the vessel. And that's what the aircraft and the surface search vessel is allowing us to do right now, but we're also having to uh, search in the water column. And we're doing that right now uh, with the use of uh, sonar buoys and sonar on uh, the uh, ship that's out there to listen for uh, any sounds that uh, we can uh, detect in the water column. Over the course of the next couple days, uh, we anticipate adding additional capability uh, to conduct um, additional uh, search in the water as uh, those uh, commercial assets uh, arrive on scene. 
Again, uh, our thoughts are with uh, the families uh, and the crew members uh, on board the submersible, and uh, we're working very closely with uh, all U.S. Uh, and international partners uh, to um, provide any capability that we can provide uh, to search uh, for uh, the, the overdue vessel and uh, rescue uh, the crew members on board. At this point, uh, we'll take uh, questions. There were reports that, that, that the submarine may be trapped in the wreckage of the Titanic. Is this even possible? If that were the case, how much oxygen would these people on board have? So, in terms of uh, locating the overdue submersible, we have to make sure that we're looking on both uh, the surface using aerial and, and uh, surface vessels, but then expanding into underwater uh, search as well. Right now, our capability is limited to uh, sonar buoys and listening for sounds, um, but uh, you know we're working very hard to uh, increase the capability. We understand from the operator of the vessel that the vessel uh, was designed with a 96-hour uh, 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 sustainment uh, capability if there was an emergency on board. Uh, and so uh, we're using that time, making the best use of every moment of that time to uh, locate the vessel. Sir, can you talk about who was on board exactly? And is there somebody named Amish Harding, a British explorer, can confirm that he's on board as a family? At this point, I'm not in a position to uh, confirm the identity of anybody uh, on board uh, the vessel. Um, out of uh, respect for the families, we're uh, you know, going through the notification process, uh, and more updates will be uh, forthcoming. Sorry, I mean, I may be jumping to something here, but um, it seems like if that vessel would be sitting on the bottom that's absolutely part of the overall planning for uh, this search case right now we're focused on locating the vessel but at the same time if we find this vessel uh, in the water then we will have to uh, affect some sort of rescue or coordinating uh, reaching out to uh, different uh, partners within the U.S. Uh, Navy, uh, within the Canadian uh, Armed Forces, and within private industry to understand what uh, underwater rescue capability might be available. Are there any vessels on the way there that could do that, get down there? So... Uh, at this moment, uh, we're focused on uh, the search uh, and uh, understanding the capabilities uh, of the vessels uh, that are uh, deploying to the scene. And when your sonar measure SD was 13,000 feet? So uh, the sonar capabilities uh, within the sonar buoys and within uh, the hull of the commercial vessel that uh, is out there operating on site, those aren't Coast Guard sonars. Um, they are capable of listening uh, to a depth of uh, 13,000 feet, as I understand it. On some of the numbers here, you mentioned uh, that uh, there were 96 hours of oxygen. Uh, how much of the 96 hours do you maintain if they are submerged? And also, what is the square mileage of your search right now? So uh, in terms of uh, the square mileage of the search, I don't have that number uh, right at this moment, but it includes both a surface area that we're looking at and a subsurface area. And so we'll get you the, the exact number for uh, the square mileage of the search. In terms of the hours, uh, 
we understood that that was uh, 96 hours of uh, rescue uh, cap or emergency capability uh, from, from the operator. And so uh, we anticipate that there's somewhere between uh, 70 to uh, the full 96 hours available at this point. So it's certainly uh, the purpose of the submarine was to, um, as I understand, the purpose of the submersible was to uh, provide uh, opportunity to visit the wreck site and explore the wreck site. Uh, so that's that's a possibility. Uh, again, right now our focus is getting on as much capability into uh, the area as we can and understanding that uh, full capability of those assets that are being deployed. Our uh, aerial assets that are being deployed have the capability to do both visual and radar searches, and, and the Canadian's uh, asset had the ability to drop sonar buoys and listen, and so we're using all that information to improve our search capability. And if it's the case that it's on the field, what does that look like as well as the challenges? So uh, we're... we're uh, working through that right now, um, but uh, what we're really focused on uh, at the moment is really locating the vessel, which could either be in the surface or subsurface. And so we're bringing in technical expertise to understand uh, both uh, the dynamics of underwater uh, search uh, and uh, underwater rescue uh, operations. Hi, David. So so, uh, as uh, search and rescue pro professionals, uh, you know, we work very, very hard, and, and our crews take this personally. Our first thoughts are with the, uh, the crew members and the families of uh, those on board. And so we want to make sure that we have done absolutely everything that we can do to uh, locate uh, their family members and bring them home safe. And so they're first and foremost in our thoughts uh, every moment of uh, this uh, search operation. Sir, how common are these threats to the Titanic in general, and how dangerous are they even without an emergency capability? Like, what kind of I don't have uh, any details on how often uh, folks uh, visit uh, the wreck site there at Titanic, uh, nor uh, the, any specific comments on the dangers involved. Certainly, uh, every time uh, ships go to sea, they encounter uh, hazards and dangers, uh, and so uh, having properly prepared vessels, properly prepared uh, crew members, uh, and uh, making sure that you practice emergency procedures, good good uh, um, practical advice for anybody that goes to sea. What's happening specifically with the families of those people involved right now? Are you in contact with them? Is there a stationary for them? What's happening? So uh, at this point, I'm not going to uh, dis discuss any information uh, about the families and communications with the families, uh, and so we'll, we'll provide that uh, with uh, future updates. Any idea on the number of personnel searching? So uh, the Coast Guard has uh, two uh, C-130 aircraft uh, in addition to the command team that's uh, working here. We have two C-130 aircraft uh, deployed. The Canadians have a C-130 aircraft and a P-8 aircraft. Uh, we also have access to and, and uh, will launch this evening a uh, C-130 aircraft from the New York uh, National Guard. 
to make sure that we have uh, air assets, sufficient air assets up there. On the surface, we have the uh, commercial operator that's been uh, on site, uh, and we're bringing additional uh, surface search assets into play, which will also bring in some subsurface uh, search capability. Last question. All right, you've been <coughs> listening to Rear Admiral John uh, Mauger, the commander of the first uh, Coast Guard district in the United States, updating. Uh, all of us on the intense search for five people on a sub near the wreckage of the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean. The international search mission is expected to continue throughout the evening as rescuers race against the clock. Right now, they're just trying to find this submersible. We will bring you all the updates as they come in. Coming up, what Republican voters think about Donald Trump despite all the legal drama that surrounds him. That's next. And our 2024 lead Republican presidential candidates weighing in on the RNC's loyalty pledge, which would require all contenders to support the eventual nominee, even if he has been convicted of a felony. Take a listen. Look, I think the pledge uh, is, is just a useless idea, Jake. I'm going to take the pledge just as seriously as Donald Trump took it in 2016. I'm not going to, uh, you know, support uh, just like uh, other voters are not going to support somebody for president who is uh, uh, under indictment uh, that is uh, potentially convicted at that time. Let's get right to Republican strategist Sarah Longwell, as well as former Democratic South Carolina State Representative Bakari Sellers. Thanks to, to both of you for being here, Sarah. Um, early polling shows Trump continues to dominate over the rest of the 2024 field. Now candidates are having to shape their campaigns around what Trump may or may not do. Um, how can candidates recenter to focus on their messaging? And is that what you recommend that they do? Uh, actually, I recommend that they all start taking on Donald Trump as forcefully as Chris Christie has. Um, the fact is, nobody has a chance against Trump unless they are able to knock him out of the race, pull him down. They are all far too afraid of voters. And look, I understand why. I was just in Iowa. I was doing focus groups with two-time Trump voters. And uh, I've, I had a non-college group and I had a college group. And the non-college group, they were 100% all in for Trump. And every indictment, every new thing that comes along, they take that as more reason to support him. They all said that the indictments made them more likely to support him. And that is a real challenge for these other candidates. But the fact is, I think that Chris Christie... Uh, I'm not sure that he's the right person exactly because Republican voters uh, don't love him. But I do think he's setting a good example for how to go straight at Trump. And uh, and that's the only way they're they're going to go. They have to go through Trump. They cannot go around him. Bakari, Trump's former attorney general and Trump's former secretary of defense are, are both criticizing Trump uh, after his indictment. Take a listen. He will always put his own interests and gratifying his own ego ahead of everything else, including the country's interests. There's no question about it. This is a perfect example of that. He's like, you know, he's like a nine-year-old, defiant nine-year-old kid who's always pushing the glass toward the edge of the table, defying his parents to stop him from doing it. Do you think Trump can be trusted with the nation's secrets ever again? Well, based on his actions, again, if proven true, uh, under the indictment by the special counsel, no. I mean, it's, it's just irresponsible action that places uh, our service members at risk, places our nation's security at risk. I mean, the number of Republican officials who worked with Trump, 
who are saying things and have been saying them for years and years, but especially now uh, with Barr and Esper. Uh, is it ever going to affect Trump supporting voters? No, it, it won't. And the fact is, I think a lot of Trump voters look at them as being a part of the swamp. Um, many of them, they didn't speak out when they had the opportunity to, when they were actually serving. Uh, they went in believing that they could change Donald Trump. Uh, they failed at that spectacularly. Um, and now they're speaking out against them. I guess it's it's never too late to do so. But this is Donald Trump's party. And the Republican Party didn't make the structural changes throughout their primary season to actually effectuate change, meaning that all you have to do is have a, a, a plurality and you win all of those delegates for that particular state. It's not split in half or it's not shared in proportion to the number of delegates you win. So Donald Trump, of course, is sitting in the catbird seat. The biggest problem you have, I mean, this is this is the point uh, that many people have been making is that, of course, Chris Christie is taking him head on. I mean, I have a whole conspiracy theory about the fact that Chris Christie's only in the race to do that. But you have individuals like Nikki Haley, you have individuals like Mike Pence to a lesser degree and many others who will not take him on forcefully. They want their cake and they want to eat it, too. And they're trying to split hairs. And that's something that you simply cannot do. I'm not certain anyone can beat Donald Trump because he still has 35 percent of the Republican base. Um, But the way that these candidates, particularly Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence and others are taking him on is not a way that you can beat Donald Trump. And no one's taken him on frontally yet except Chris Christie. And we'll have to see what effect that has. I think Asa Hutchinson has, has been willing to take him on. It's just maybe Christie, Christie's style gets more uh, attention, Jersey over Arkansas. Hey, Sarah, a polling after Trump's first indictment shows that his favorability rating is 31%. Uh, is there anyone in the 2024 field that you think can't break through? You know, I think this is actually the key question. Is, that, is there anybody with the uh, the necessary political cha- talent to take on Donald Trump. And I think for a lot of voters, they thought Ron DeSantis was going to be that guy. You know, when I was doing focus groups several months ago, after DeSantis had his big win and Donald Trump had sort of suffered a string of losses for the people that he's in, he had endorsed, there was I was seeing a lot of activity in the focus groups where people were really interested in moving on, and they all really liked Ron DeSantis. The problem is, is that the more that they've seen of DeSantis, the more they say things like, you know, I don't think it's his time yet, or he'd make a good vice president for Trump. And because Trump, whether it's the indictments or uh, because he's able to play grievance politics, he's he's able to sort of suck up all the oxygen. And because they these other candidates have decided to defend him in the face of these indictments, they've all become these bit players in the central drama controlled by Donald Trump. And so I just haven't seen sort of the political talent or the political will to seize these moments and elevate themselves. They're all deciding uh, to just play second fiddle. And I think there's a lot of people in this race that are playing for VP already. Sarah and Bakari, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, how Russia may be testing out dangerous new tactics using tanks in Ukrainian territory. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, is this a terrifying new tactic? Russian officials claim this video shows a Russian tank packed with explosives being detonated via remote control in a Ukrainian stronghold. Plus, he was one of the first African-American Marines and he fought at Guadalcanal where he was badly injured. But instead of having access to veterans benefits when he returned home to the U.S., he faced rejection due to Jim Crow laws. Now his family is fighting to honor him with a Purple Heart before it's too late for this 100-year-old hero. 
And leading this hour with an update on the search that is underway for a tourist submersible that it was diving to the wreckage of the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean. Five people are reportedly on board the vessel, currently believed to be in the North Atlantic Ocean, though where in the ocean, authorities do not know. The U.S. Coast Guard and Canadian search and rescue teams have been launched to try to locate the vessel. The last contact with the submersible was an hour and 45 minutes into its dive to the bottom of the Atlantic, 12,000 feet, 12,000 feet below the surface. CNN's Paula Newton is following the latest developments for us. Paula, how are officials trying to reestablish contact and, and what are the difficulties they're facing in finding the submersible? Yeah, unfortunately, Jake, we just had an update from the U.S. Coast Guard and they you know, basically confirmed how difficult this is. So remember, Jake, you said about 12,000 feet. They conver- confirmed it, it could be uh, that far down in terms of the deep uh, ocean search that they have to conduct here, almost two and a half miles. They have uh, three to four assets in the air uh, and in the sea right now searching. The problem is, is that the Coast Guard, uh, Rear Admiral John Mogger admits, look, This is what they call a remote area. They're going to muster as many resources as they can. And this, in fact, includes commercial vessels that they'll call upon. And he was clear that as of right now, while they are putting certainly listening devices on the surface of the water to, you know, hear anything, uh, that they are relying on more resources being deployed, uh, perhaps as well by the Canadian military in the coming hours, so that they can actually launch a rescue mission in Uh, what we call a deep sea uh, mission rescue. And this will be quite difficult. He's saying, though, that right now they could have perhaps come closer to the surface, but that the area they have to search is just so large that it's impossible to know. They lost communication with them more than 24 hours ago now, and that was less than two hours as they were trying to reach the wreck of the Titanic. Uh, again, a lot of resources being brought to bear here right now. The weather was fine when they were going out. They are looking at waves of three to six feet, uh, the Rear Admiral said. Having said that, that's pretty normal for that area of the Atlantic. Unfortunately, though, there is fog at this hour, and you can imagine how difficult it is out there when, as he points out, not only are you trying to search the surface of the sea for a 20 21-foot vessel, but you are also knowing that you lost communication with them more than two miles beneath the surface of the water. Jake? What more do we know about the individuals who were on board this underwater vessel, Paula? Yeah, I mean, we don't have confirmation, and certainly the U.S. Coast Guard would not confirm. But CNN has, in fact, confirmed that a British billionaire, Hamish Harding, was on board. We know that from the company and the fact that they had had a social media post. It's called Action Aviation, uh, and it's the company owned by this British but UAE-based British billionaire. Um, And, you know, the quote from him was basically as he was about to submerge and do what he thought um, would be quite uh, an experience, an experience of a lifetime, he said the sub had a successful launch and Hamish is currently diving. That was the post from the company and the last they had heard from him. Uh, this is a man who is a, a an incurable uh, explorer. He has been to space. In fact, in June, um, he when it went into space as a so-called tourist. He was supposed to be doing the same thing here. But, you know, Jake, I want to stress, this is not whale watching off the coast of Newfoundland, right? These are specialized trips for which you need training and that you do play a substantial amount of money. Um, and, and for that reason, it is a specific type of person who would be on here. We believe that it is five people, as we had said. Possibly, though, now we know that it would be two crew and three paying passengers. Jake. 
All right, Paula Newton in Ottawa, thank you so much. Now to Ukraine. In the second week of its summer offensive, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is insisting that Ukraine has not lost any of its positions, only gained new ones. Let's get right to CNN's Ben Wiedemann, who's in Zaporizhia, Ukraine, for us. Ben, what are you seeing and hearing on the ground there? Well, what we're seeing and hearing are claims by the Ukrainians that they have taken territory. Uh, They say they've taken control of eight settlements, uh, and that includes 44 square miles of territory. But the fighting is intense. We heard from the uh, commander of Ukrainian armed forces uh, that the Russians have laid dense minefields and moved a lot of their reserves to the southern front, just south of here in Zaporizhia, uh, to reinforce their lines against the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive, which in the grand scheme of things has not really achieved much so far. It's still early. It's widely believed the Ukrainians have yet to commit a, the bulk of their forces uh, to the fight. But this is something that you know we've been talking about for months. So the Russians have been preparing of four months for this counteroffensive. And as anybody who studied war knows, it's much more difficult to take territory than to defend it. And the Russians have had quite a few months to prepare for this Ukrainian counteroffensive. Jake? And Russia claims to have destroyed a Ukrainian uh, tank by detonating explosives remotely. Is this a new battlefield tactic that we're going to be seeing more of from the Russians? It's a first. Uh, What we know is, according to the Telegram channel of the Russian Defense Ministry, that the Russians crammed this tank, a T-54, which dates back to just the years after the, the Second World War, with tons of explosives and drove it unmanned toward the Ukrainian lines. What you see in this video put out by the Russian Defense Ministry is that the tank hits what appears to be an anti-tank mine, and it then is hit by an RPG round, we believe. And then there's this massive explosion about 300 yards from the Ukrainian lines. It's not clear how effective this tactic actually is. We don't know of any Ukrainian casualties as a result of this attack. We don't know if the Russians, and the Russians didn't mention any uh, success in breaking through the Ukrainian lines, but it certainly represents a new tactic. It's hard to say if this is a tactic that's actually going to make much of a difference in this war. Jake? All right, Ben Wiedemann in Zaporizhia, Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Let's turn now to Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oskana Marakova. Uh, Madam Ambassador, we just heard the latest on gains by Ukrainian troops in the counteroffensive, but this is obviously going to be a long, hard slog. How do you assess the progress at the moment? Thank you, Jake, for having me. And many thanks for your journalists to be in Zaporizhia. I hope they will stay safe there. Well, you know, we knew it's going to be very difficult. And uh, yet, as our commanders and our president uh, says on a daily basis, we are gaining ground. We are liberating Ukraine. Uh, It's going to be very difficult. It might not be as uh, fast as especially Ukrainians who are under occupation would need it to be or would want it to be. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a full-fledged war. It's a very difficult operation. And as our short uh, commander Zaluzhny said, everything is going according to the plan. And we have very high trust in our military commanders, uh, as they have shown during the past 16 months. They know what they're doing, and they're capable of doing it. We just need a little bit more support 
a little bit more weapons. So we're hearing from the Russians uh, that they are destroying and targeting a number of Ukrainian defenses, including Bradley fighting vehicles provided by the U.S. and others in the West. Can you confirm those losses? And, and more, larger, uh, more largely, are, are you getting the support you need to replenish those supplies uh, in order to continue and then finish this fight? Well, first of all, losses, of course, are inevitable in a, in a full-fledged war. But Russians showing uh, the same vehicles all over again, uh, and whether it's even uh, where they are showing them again. We know they have been lying since the beginning of this war, and they will continue doing that. We will not uh, divert our attention to, to what they are saying. Uh, we heard from our commanders that, again, uh, it's going even better than uh, we have expected. We are repairing what we need to repair. And the question is, uh, you know, as we say, to continue to, to get more assistance and more supply in order to be able to do it faster. But uh, again, the, the losses on the Russian uh, side are definitely much more higher, even though uh, they are in defense. And as you said earlier, as we heard from Ben, they have prepared for this for, for a long time. So regardless of how difficult it is, Every Ukrainian life is precious for us. Every uh, meter or feet of Ukrainian territory is has a strategic importance. We do not have any other option than to liberate all Ukraine. And the goal is to liberate all Ukraine within our recognized international borders. We heard from the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg um, that at the upcoming summit next month, uh, NATO is not going to discuss a formal invitation for Ukraine to join the NATO alliance. What's your response to that? Might that set back Ukraine as you battle to get Russia out of your country? Look, NATO is the family of countries uh, with the principles that we share. Ukraine is a EOP status country, enhanced opportunities partner with NATO since 2020. Uh, we cooperate and we're very grateful to the United States and every member of NATO who individually uh, are helping us in on, on this front. And, you know, we have been very clear about what Ukraine uh, would like to be and where we see ourselves since 2008. You know, we see ourselves as the European country. We would like to be part of the transatlantic family. Uh, you know, it's in our hearts. It's in our constitution since 2018. Now, of course, it will uh, take all of the friends and partners in NATO to share the same uh, view and to give us this invitation. We know that the doors are open. Uh, so we look forward to a very open and friendly discussion during this upcoming summit. And I think not only we would like to be part of NATO, but Ukraine has a lot to add to NATO. And I think in mm. this time, it's very important for us to stay united and to do whatever all we can, whatever we can do to restore the international order that Russia has literally destroyed by starting this full-fledged war after they attacked us in 2014. Ambassador Marakova, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Also in our world lead, jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was back in a Russian court today. Navalny, who is already serving a nine-year prison sentence in Russia for a fraud case, which he has claimed was politically motivated, is now facing new charges for allegedly creating an extremist's community. That's according to Russian state media. CNN's Matthew Chance is with us from Moscow. Matthew, what happened at Navalny's hearing today? 
Well, Jake, it paints a very disturbing picture of a Russia today. Alexei Navalny, the prominent anti-corruption campaigner here, first poisoned and nearly killed, then arrested and sentenced to nine years in jail, remember, is now facing new extremist charges that could see his prison term extended by up to 30 years, sparking new outrage among his supporters. Well, the hearing was at a remote penal colony where Navalny's being held, and neither journalists nor his parents were allowed inside the courtroom. But the prosecution detailed nearly 4,000 pages of new allegations against the 47-year-old anti-corruption campaigner, including that he created an extremist network and financed extremist activity. In a statement, Navalny quipped that it was clear that I am a sophisticated and persistent criminal. He added that it was impossible to find out exactly what I'm accused of. Back to you, Jake. All right, Matthew Chan to Moscow. Thank you so much. Coming up, a celebration turned violent. Witnesses described the moment shots were fired at a Juneteenth event, plus the stunning number of mass shootings over the holiday weekend. Then more deadly tornadoes destroying neighborhoods in Mississippi. As other parts of the United States are facing a triple threat from Mother Nature this evening, a look at where those threats are. That's next. International lead a tragic holiday weekend marked by deadly gun violence across the United States. Since Friday, the Gun Violence Archive has counted at least 19 mass shootings where four or more victims were shot, not including the shooter. In one case near Chicago, 22 were people shot yesterday afternoon at a Juneteenth celebration. One person was killed. The aftermath was so chaotic, police say they still don't know how many shooters they're even looking for. CNN's Adrian Broadus has more. This is the one that hurts the most. Um, I had stitches in my head, so I already have a hole. Nichelle Peterson was among the 22 injured in a parking lot party in Illinois Saturday night, about 21 miles west of Chicago. At least one person was killed. Bullets grazed Peterson's shoulder and forehead. I was in the backseat hiding, and they just kept going across me, but I couldn't get any lower, you know what I mean? I just heard it, and I felt it. At least 30 rounds went through my car alone. The DuPage County Sheriff's Office says deputies were on site to monitor the event. It was just a Juneteenth party. I'm not exactly sure who threw it. But around 12.25 a.m., they got called to respond to a nearby fight and immediately returned when they heard gunfire. Next thing you know, shots just got there going off and everybody ran and it was chaos. Investigators say multiple suspects fired multiple rounds into the parking lot crowd. We just started hurting shoot come before we had us, so we dropped down. Mm-hmm. We dropped down until they stopped. They just kept going. In downtown St. Louis, a 17-year-old male was killed and at least nine others hurt. It happened at a party held in an office building. It's every parent's worst nightmare, tenfold. Officers say multiple weapons were found at the scene, including an AR-style rifle, and they're still trying to figure out how the group got access to the building. It was planned in advance. We're still investigating who had access to it. In central Washington state, two people are dead and several others hurt after a mass shooting at the campgrounds near the Gorge Amphitheater in Quincy, about 150 miles east of Seattle. People were just trying to come out here to have fun. It happened around 8.25 p.m. local time during an electronic dance music festival. The Grant County Sheriff's Office says the shooter shot four people in the campground then continued firing into the crowd. According to CNN affiliate Como, when officers caught up to the suspect, they fired their weapons, injuring the alleged shooter who survived. 
We don't know what the motives were or what the intentions were of the shooter. And on Friday night in Carson, California, eight people were injured during a shooting at a home about 17 miles south of Los Angeles. It happened in a cul-de-sac where it's believed around 20 to 30 people were gathered. Deputies say the victims range in age from 16 to 24. We did get some uh, uh, indication there might have been a, a fight before the shooting, but that's all being investigated. Also in California, multiple people were hurt in San Francisco during what police call a car-to-car -car shooting. That shooting left two people critically injured. And get this, two girls were walking across the street with their bicycles when a driver of one of those cars hit them. Meanwhile, back here in Willowbrook, Illinois, two people who were shot at this plaza behind me remain in critical condition. And this scene is still being processed. The woman who we heard from at the top of the story says despite the pain, she has so many reasons to give thanks. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Also in our national lead, Jasper County, Mississippi residents are assessing the damage after a large and deadly tornado touched down overnight. The storm left widespread damage in its wake. Homes destroyed, buildings ripped to shreds. At least one person was killed, nearly two dozen injured. And the threat of severe weather it's not over yet. Today, more than 50 million people in the southeastern United States face severe weather alerts of different kinds. Sweltering, record-breaking temperatures threaten millions more. Some in the U.S. are seeing temperatures rise to triple digits. Meteorologist Chad Myers is tracking it all from CNN's Weather Center. Chad, which states are at risk for severe weather today? Mississippi, Alabama, southern Georgia, and all of Florida, at least the northern half of Florida. And even just about an hour ago, Jake, we had a tornado that rolled through Moss Point, Mississippi. Now, it wasn't like the pictures that you showed there of an EF3 or maybe bigger, but this was a tornado that is now really has that whole town just kind of in a standstill. Everybody trying to make sure where everybody is. Is everyone okay? And that's going to be the story for the rest of the night. In this yellow area, there is that potential for another tornado or two. Maybe not large tornadoes, and that's great, but still, it doesn't take a big one if it's over your home and right along the Gulf Coast. That's where the humidity is. That's where the flooding has been, flood emergency going on here from almost, that's about Pensacola or from Pascagoula all the way back over to just about Orange Beach. That's where the flooding is going on right now, and there's still more rain coming down. The good news is the heaviest now rain is moving into the Gulf of Mexico itself and away from where it has already fallen south of Fairhope and all the way over toward Foley into Alabama. The next couple of days, more rainfall still to come, scattered around the southeast, and excessive accumulations in some places too, Jake. And Chad, Texas is experiencing record triple-digit heat. Just, just how hot is it going to get there? Where it's going to be cool across the southeast, that will not exist all the way toward the west. Look at the Heat index, and the record's possible, 60-plus possible over the next couple of days. Heat index with excessive heat warnings all the way to 122 this afternoon. And even right now, it's Corpus Christi. It feels like 116. And, Jake, we have to understand that those numbers are in the shade. And so the numbers you see behind me for the next days, high temperatures, well above 100, with heat indices approaching 120. You get in the sunshine, you have to work in the sunshine, it's going to feel hotter than that. And the National Hurricane Center is tracking a brand new tropical storm in the Atlantic, Chad. Tell us what you know about that. 
<laughs> Tropical Storm Brett. We already had Arlene. It was a pretty nothing, nothing storm. But Brett is a 40-mile-per-hour storm right now in the Atlantic in a kind of a rare place for this time of year, way out here in the middle of the Atlantic. Typically, storms this time of year will form in the, the Gulf of Mexico because it's warm. Well, all of the Atlantic is warmer than normal right now. And yes, this is forecast to become an 80-mile-per-hour hurricane by Thursday and maybe make approach toward as I say, Puerto Rico or the southern parts of those islands over the weekend. We'll have to keep watching this because this is the first real storm of the year, even though it starts with Brett. Arlene wasn't much. All right, Chad, thanks so much. Coming up, a thawing between two superpowers who have been giving each other the silent treatment, but it does not quite sound as though the United States and China are totally on the same page, even after this key meeting. Stay with us. In our politics lead, President Biden is just finishing up a speech on climate change in California. He's out west for a three-day trip to the Bay Area to focus on the Biden administration's climate commitments. While there, he will also be making a few fundraising stops for his re-election campaign. That's after Biden held the first rally of his re-election campaign in Philadelphia over the weekend. Let's get right to CNN's Priscilla Alvarez, who's traveling with President Biden. Priscilla, uh, what are we going to see from Biden on this trip? Well, he's trying to achieve two things at once, focusing on his governing agenda while also raking in money for that 2024 re-election campaign. Now, as you mentioned, President Biden moments ago wrapping up remarks in which he highlighted the investments that his administration has made on climate and climate resiliency, including an announcement of additional federal funding of around $600 million to help communities that are on the front lines. He also announced that the White House will host a summit on climate resilience in the months to come. And he also knocked Republicans for trying to interfere with any climate action. So President Biden taking a moment to put the focus on climate after what has been a week of campaign-related stops, starting with guns late last week, later on the economy over the weekend, and today on climate. Now, of course, climate groups and environmental justice groups have buoyed President Biden before, and so he has courted them in 2020 and continues to do so now. So this was also an opportunity to speak to these issues, including after receiving the first the first joint uh, endorsement from four major environmental groups uh, a few days ago. So President Biden doing that while also arriving moments ago to his first fundraiser while he's here. This is all coming against the backdrop of the president really putting momentum behind his 2024 campaign. So while he has spent the early part of the afternoon focused on climate and climate resilience and what the administration is doing on that front, we expect him to go to fundraisers over the course of the evening and in the days to come as he also tries to shore up support on all fronts for that 2024 campaign. Jake? Priscilla, are we going to see Biden traveling more for rallies as his campaign kicks into gear? As people might remember in 2020, because of COVID, uh, he really didn't do very many public events or travel. And we still don't expect to see that many political rallies until later this year and into 2024, with most of his events really focused on what the administration has done so far. But I was at his rally just over the weekend on Saturday where he spoke to union members and he really tried to rev them up to try to make the emphasis and put the emphasis on them that he needs their help to mobilize voters. So they're certainly trying to add momentum to his campaign. But in the interim, the focus really is going to be on fundraising. And President Biden 
First Lady Jill Biden, as well as Vice President Kamala Harris, will all be hitting the road to try to bring in those funds, which will be critical to his campaign, especially ahead of that first quarter deadline. Jake? All right, Priscilla, thanks so much. Now to China in our world lead, where U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with China's President Xi Jinping earlier today, a monumental 35-minute meeting that ended with both superpowers stressing the importance of thawing the increasingly icy relationship. As CNN's Ivan Watson reports for us now, progress was made, leaders say, but key disagreements such as Taiwan and opening lines of military-to-military communication remain. Is this enough to stop the downward spiral? Antony Blinken, the first U.S. Secretary of State to visit the Chinese capital in five years. Shaking hands with Xi Jinping, China's leader for life, the most powerful since Mao. Xi positions himself as the dominant figure at the head of the table, but also recognizes the need to stabilize ties between the world's two most powerful nations. The two sides have also made progress and reached agreement on some specific issues. This is very good. Relations between China and the U.S. sharply deteriorated at the end of the Trump administration. China's been taking advantage of the United States for a long time. Since then, they've only gotten worse. The biggest flashpoint, the self-governing island of Taiwan, which China claims as its own. Beijing regularly deploys warplanes and warships around Taiwan, while accusing Washington of stoking the fires of the island's independence. In November, President Biden met with Xi in Bali to rescue this vital relationship. We're going to compete vigorously, but I'm not looking for conflict. I'm looking to manage this competition responsibly. But any goodwill generated quickly shattered by the appearance of a giant Chinese surveillance balloon over the U.S. in February. U.S. warplanes shot it down. Meanwhile, Beijing claims U.S. moves like a ban on the sale of semiconductors are aimed at constraining China's rise. What this is about, again, is not trying to cut off, eliminate, uh, hinder economic relations. On the contrary, we think that they should be strengthened, but in a way that looks out for our workers. We can, we will, uh, and we must take steps necessary to protect our national security. If the shoe were on the other foot, I have no doubt that China would do exactly the same thing. In Beijing, Blinken succeeded at achieving his stated goal of reestablishing communication with China. China's foreign minister accepted an invitation to visit Washington, and both governments agreed to expand person-to-person exchanges and increase commercial passenger flights. But when it comes to communication between the U.S. and Chinese militaries and their dangerously close encounters in the Indo-Pacific, there's been no progress. I think um, it's absolutely vital that we have these kind of communications, uh, military to military. At this moment, uh, China has not agreed to move forward with that. Um, I think that's an issue that we have to keep working on. Now, Jake, despite all this friction, U.S.-Chinese trade, it reached record levels last year. And this is important because China, its economy hasn't exactly bounced back from the self-imposed isolation 
of the COVID pandemic. It's battling record high youth unemployment, more than 20%. It's really important real estate construction and development industry is in the dumps and its exports are down from last year. So, so that's part of why Xi Jinping is sitting down with Blinken. Uh, there's an acknowledgement that the world's two largest economies, even if the two governments don't really trust each other, they simply cannot afford to not do business together. Is there an effort to discuss uh, the decoupling of the economies? Yeah, actually, there's some uh, criticism of that coming from a senior Chinese government official, because what Western countries have done and the U.S. has done is kind of rebrand decoupling. And they say, we want to de-risk. We need to diversify our supply chains and not put all our eggs into manufacturing in China. Well, the Chinese government has come back and said, that's effectively rebranding. And that's another example of why China doesn't trust the U.S. right now. And it's one of these obstacles that I don't know, even if the two governments are going to talk more, I don't know how they can get over this deep distrust that persists. All right, Ivan Watson in Hong Kong for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, a race against time to bestow a final honor on a World War II veteran who was one of the first black Marines, why he says his fight is not yet over. International lead celebrations and commemorations across the United States to mark Juneteenth. Today marks the end of slavery in the United States 158 years ago. In Fort Worth, Texas, the annual Opal Lee Walk celebrated the 96-year-old activist who's known as the grandmother of Juneteenth. Opal Lee had advocated to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. In 2021, President Joe Biden signed the legislation to make Lee's dream a reality. In Galveston, Texas, thousands of people attended the Juneteenth Festival. Galveston is known as the birthplace of Juneteenth because on June 19th, 1865, the Union Army arrived in Galveston and told thousands of black slaves that the Civil War was over and they were free. Like so many black Americans, Lee Vernon Newby Jr. fought for freedom overseas during World War II, only to find himself denied basic human rights when he returned home to the United States, especially in his case to the Jim Crow South. And as CNN's Jason Carroll discovered and reports for us now, Newby's fight for recognition is not over, even at 100 years old. 1923, the year of the Charleston time before televisions, FM radio, before scientists had discovered penicillin. The year Lee Vernon Newby Jr. was born in Jackson, Tennessee, 100 years ago. Generally, I live pretty quiet life. Hey, 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 hey. Not so quiet. In 1942, at the onset of America's entry into World War II, Newby made history. He was drafted into the U.S. Marine Corps when he was 18 years old, making him one of the first African-American Marines. I was nervous. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what I was getting into, Mm -hmm. but I was wanted to serve my country. Did you feel extra pressure because you were one of a few? Yes, it did. But uh, I was thankful, you know, for the opportunity. Newby was assigned to the Monfort Point Marines, a segregated Negro unit in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Not long after, he headed to the South Pacific to the Battle of Guadalcanal. It was time for America to take the offensive. To fight an enemy overseas while still coping with racial barriers from home. There were blacks over here and the white was over there. 
So they kept you segregated. Segregated. Yeah. It was that mission in the Solomon Islands where Newby was badly injured during an accident when gasoline exploded in a hole. All of a sudden, something hit me right in my chest when I hit the deck and got up. You know, all the skin was just laying out, you know, down. I prayed, I said, Lord, I want to come back, but I want a family. Burns covered more than 60% of Newby's body. He was hospitalized for several weeks. Then his family says the Marines sent him back into action. He was ordered to go back into the war. Hmm. Instead of, he wasn't 100% healed. Oh, that's just me when I was getting married and so forth. I don't want to ask you what year that was. <laughs> Newby received an honorable discharge in 1946, but was not treated as a war veteran back home, where he struggled dealing with racism and Jim Crow laws. He eventually found work as a janitor and chauffeur and raised a family. Years later, he received recognition for his service and longevity. Local news covered his birthday in April. He took us to his room at a senior living facility outside Detroit, where he showed us his medals, including the Congressional Gold Medal. And this is presented by President Obama. Yes. Yeah. And a framed birthday letter from President Joe Biden. He says he's grateful for all of it. But it is this letter that's causing him so much pain these days. It came last month, informing Newby he's not eligible to receive the Purple Heart, something he had been hoping for. The letter concluded, since you were not wounded at the hands of the enemy, you are not entitled to the Purple Heart. This makes me feel not good, see, because the government, the United States government, you know, we are, in the years, as the years been passed by for the black, we've been getting a short deal. His family, heartbroken, but planning to appeal the decision. He's 100 years old, and he should have that. And that's what he's still fighting for and hoping for. What I always wish for the Pentagon to really recognize, just just to respect, you know, his sacrifices. Purple heart or not, Newby has already earned his place in history. I still love America. I still say America, maybe someday I hope that it would be better. For, for our, our, my race as a whole. Jason Carroll, CNN, Detroit. Our thanks to Jason Carroll for that important report. CNN's Juneteenth, a global celebration for freedom, airs tonight with a special concert event featuring some of the biggest names in music. That starts this evening at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up on The Lead, why an aspirin a day may actually send some adults to the doctor. That will be next in our health lead. But first, here's CNN's Alex Marquardt. He's in for Wolf Blitzer with what's next on the Situation Room. And Alex, you have more on this Blinken meeting with President Xi. We will be digging more, Jake, into the Secretary of State's visit to Beijing and that very important meeting that the Secretary had with the President. Uh, But it is clear that there is a long way to go before this relationship is back on track. Progress has been made, Blinken said, but the Chinese are still blocking the lines of communication between the heads of the militaries. And that is where we have seen some of the biggest friction lately in the South China Sea and in the China and the Taiwan Strait. So we'll be digging into that uh, with Congressman Ro Khanna, who sits on the House Select Committee uh, for China. Jake, all that coming up in just a few moments in the Situation Room. And one of the things that's it's so important for people to understand is that uh, there's always been this policy of what the U.S. government calls strategic ambiguity, which is, will the U.S. 
how, how, how intensely will the U.S. help Taiwan if Taiwan is attacked by China, which wants Taiwan back? Uh, and the U.S. has historically not really answered the question. Uh, that's called strategic ambiguity. President Biden has not been particularly strategically ambiguous. He has basically been saying, we're going to help them. Um, but what was the message that Secretary of State Blinken conveyed today when he met with President Xi? Well, the secretary is saying, making clear that he is not changing the U.S. stance towards Taiwan. And that is, uh, as you say, strategic ambiguity, uh, not pushing for Taiwanese independence. You're absolutely right that uh, President Biden has muddied those waters, saying that the U.S. would come to Taiwan's aid if it were attacked. Uh, the U.S. has certainly been supporting Taiwan in all kinds of ways, including with military aid. And that is certainly what irks China. Uh, just recently, we heard uh, the head of China's military say, mind your own business. And that really set the tone as Secretary Blinken headed to Beijing. Uh, the, 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 the Secretary Blinken's counterparts ahead of the trip saying that the U.S. should mind their own business. So along with the lack of progress on those military to military communications, Jake, it appears that no progress has been made on the Taiwan issue for now, it appears that the U.S. wants to maintain as much stability as possible and prevent more of those uh, military uh, interactions, those, those, those uh, you know, confrontations uh, out uh, around Taiwan. Jake? All right, Alex, we'll be watching the Situation Room right after this show. Thank you so much. And we will be right back. And we are back with our 2024 lead. Early 2024 Republican primary polling shows Trump with a dominant hold over the entirety of the Republican field. Now Republican candidates are having to shape their campaigns around what Trump may or may not do. Let's bring in uh, CNN's Jessica Dean. Jessica. Yeah, Jake, you're exactly right. We're getting a recent Quinnipiac poll, for example, that's really showing this in stark numbers where it's uh, talking to Republicans all across the country. And it is important to remember it's a national poll, not in these early states, which will really indicate and shape how this race takes form as we get into 2024. But we're seeing that former President Trump has not seen any of his support erode among Republicans or voters who lean voting Republican. And that is an interesting key data point. It's so much of the 2024 Republican field continues to see the former president and his legal troubles and uh, potential political troubles as a result of that, although we don't see any evidence of that just yet, as an X factor. So they continue to look at that. This is we see President Biden in California and also Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor and Trump's rival, also in California. Jake, they have very different takes. Biden there to talk about climate change. DeSantis, of course, sending out a tweet earlier or his team sending out a tweet earlier today talking about the contrast between democratically led states like California and how he's run the state of Florida. Jake. All right, Jessica Dean, thank you so much. Appreciate it. In our health lead, an aspirin a day may actually do more harm than good when it comes to some adults. A new study finds that adults 65 years and older who do take an aspirin aspirin every day are at higher risk of anemia. Anemia is obviously the body's reduced ability to carry oxygen in the bloodstream, which can be linked to, uh, and it can be caused by subtle blood loss. More than 40% of adults in the U.S. take a daily aspirin to prevent blood clots linked to strokes and heart attacks. But recent studies show that aspirin carries an increased risk of major bleeding and that most likely outcomes of any bit, any bit, and that most likely outweighs any benefit in preventing first heart attacks or strokes. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, 
Twitter and Blue Sky if you have an invite. And I'm back on the TikTok. Or you can tweet the show at the lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to the lead once you get your podcasts, all two hours, just sitting there like a delicious tray of sushi. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Alex Marquardt, who is in for Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.